This is an IATSA's podcast. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their continuing connection to land, culture and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be aware that this podcast contains voices and names of deceased persons. Hello, I'm Craig Ritchie, a Dungaddy man uh, with connections to the Birupai Nation. I'm the CEO of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, or IATSIS as we are more commonly known. Welcome to our Voices of Power series, a joint production between IATSIS and the Churchill Trust. The Trust supports Australians from all walks of life to travel abroad to explore issues of importance and to bring that knowledge back for the benefit of their communities. Over six podcasts, we'll be hearing from Indigenous Churchill Fellows on the turning points that have inspired them in the fight for First Nations rights in Australia. I'm a Churchill Fellow myself, uh, and today we'll be hearing from Indigenous Fellows Cara Kirkwood, Hannah McGlade, Denisha Duff and Michelle Deschamps. In this first episode, Standing Up for Rights, we'll be looking at the big moments in activism and the everyday acts of our people to pursue our rights as First Nations peoples. So let's get started and enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Vic Sims, and I'm a bidjigal man from Botany Bay on the eastern side of this Sydney area in the eastern suburbs. And uh, my people have been there since time immemorial, and we're there to not so much greet the uh, First Fleet, but to oppose it. And I was born on that land, born on country. There was no uh, delivery hospital for me. I was delivered by an old Aboriginal lady. And I'm uh, sort of the last man standing who's uh, actually born on my my country. I think about Terenolius because it's those two words that have completely defined us in almost a kind of strange bubble It's like this great lie because we were here. If you're talking about attempts to completely break down a culture and society, that's completely destructive. And that has, you know, lasting legacies on communities now. Old people are dying before they get to see whether they're allowed back on their country or not. The fences are holding you out. When you kind of take off the layers, you realise that self-determination was really something that was guided by the government of the day, you know. Self-determination can look like this, but it can't go as far as that. It's a really difficult path that we have in this country because we understand these rights, we know what self-determination is, but our governments, many of them are not listening. The governance that we learnt was from a superintendent a singular person who was responsible for a a mission. And then that person was responsible to a state act. So Aboriginal people became um, inactive in the governance of the community. We're just sick of, you know, talking about it. We want a commitment and we want to get on with it. We want to be at the table and we want, obviously, to improve the circumstances of our families and communities. That's what it comes down to. That puts into words some of the reasons why First Nations people have fought so hard for justice. From the moment the British 
first set foot in our lands. We are the heirs of that fight today. We are looking forward, but we also look back to the people and events of the past for inspiration and strength. Churchill fellow Michelle de Jong is a cuckoo Yellenji woman from far north Queensland. She was drawn into the fight for rights as a young girl as she listened to elders such as her father and Eddie Mabo discuss racism, discrimination and politics around the family's kitchen table in Townsville in the 1980s. Given the mere fact of settlement itself and the perspectives around uh, whether people saw evidence of a civil society in itself speaks volumes about the disregard for the intrinsic nature of our culture. What people were looking for was infrastructure and agriculture and things like that without recognising that even within our tribal nations there's a really complex level of knowledge and experiences and systems and processes that create the opportunity for nations to survive. Michelle says that ignorance and disregard had a far-reaching effect. Even growing up, I know that in my own family there were times when there was um, an inclination to diminish your Indigenous heritage or Aboriginal heritage as a way, as a survival mechanism. And so even in families, the implications of having that long history, having a period of time where that was, I guess, silenced uh, or marginalised, but now coming out the other side and and seeing that people are really proud of that heritage and and that connection, I think is where I see us um, at the moment. Churchill fellow Cara Kirkwood agrees. Cara is a Mindanjani, Bijara and Mythica woman from Queensland. She thinks Britain's claim that Australia was Terranullius, implying this land was uninhabited before the occupation was the most destructive aspect of the British takeover. To think about sovereignty brings me back to two words that I linger on intensely in my mind often, and it's Terranullius. And I think about Terranullius particularly because it's those two words that have completely defined us in almost a kind of strange bubble where we were here. It's like this great lie because we were here. But we were declared not to be here, so we can't have sovereignty now or then or whenever um, after being here for at least 60,000 years. But, you know, it's a very strange place to be and it's a very um, frustrating piece of policy that we somehow can't work around all the time. Our leaders, communities and families have been standing up for rights, equality and justice for over 200 years now. And we talk into the air and they talk into the air. They talk about things like articles, constitutions, laws which they made, and we talk to them about bloodshed, people in creek beds, People in humpies, people dying, children dying, lack of food, malnutrition, and they couldn't hear us. Well, we want them to hear us now. What do we want? So, 
That was the decision. Let's get out there and do something. What we're going to do, we didn't really know, but we we're going to do something. And it was going to be pretty dramatic. People think that Aborigines shouldn't interfere with something like the Commonwealth Games. I say that it's about time we let the world know. Let the world know what's going on here. It's hard to single out particular individuals or events that have really made a difference. But the Churchill Fellows say there are some events and developments that stand out as real turning points for our nation. Michelle Deschamps believes everyday racism against First Nations peoples, like in the 60s and 70s in Queensland, was big in keeping the fires of resistance burning. She says the international civil rights movement in the 60s and our mob establishing community organisations in the late 70s and 80s were breakthrough developments in our fight for justice. And we are now part of the World Council of Indigenous People. We have united and we have become one people. As First Nations people, we've got connection with First Nations people around the world. I think the civil rights movement also helped us to make huge leaps in terms of the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were regarded and their involvement in the Australian society became really important in that 1960s period with things like the Electoral Act being brought in so that Indigenous peoples could have a right to vote you know, the freedom rides, as we look at the freedom rides happening in the United States and Kumanjai Perkins leading that similar kind of conversation here in Australia around segregation and discrimination. And then in 1967, creating the momentum to actually change the position of Indigenous peoples and a rights-based approach around inclusivity uh, and recognition. I think that period was really important Um and then as you move through to the to the 1970s and early 80s, I think that was when we saw the evolution of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations that allowed us to take control of some of the, the business in our communities. Kara Kirkwood also sees Australia's 1965 Freedom Ride as a big turning point. Good evening. This afternoon, a busload of university students leave Sydney for Walgett in the northwest of New South Wales. They plan on protesting there the segregation laws that affect Aborigines, both in Walgett and in other rural towns. And are Aboriginals allowed to go into the theatre? Yes, they go in by that door over there. And sit in a separate section? Yes. It was a way of life. Aborigines sat down in the front of picture theatres, nowhere else, and you walked in when the lights went off. Women don't go into dress shops and touch any of the clothes. Once they touch them, they buy them. You don't get served first in the shop if there's some white people in front of you, you get served last. You don't go into pubs, you only get served at night down the back streets. My wife and I and a couple of white friends went in there and uh, I ordered a squash for my wife and a beer for myself and uh, was refused. Said that he could serve the uh, two white persons that were with us that would refuse to serve Mavis and I. You think about the Freedom Bride. What we had was a group of Aboriginal people and the fear held in people, that, but then conversely the courage and bravery to get on a bus and head into towns. You knew people were going to hate your guts. I was threatened, I was going to get bashed up, I was punched in the back of the head, I had egg thrown down the 
back of my shirt, sand poured over my face and over the top of my head. And uh, blokes and uh, women, women too, pushed, shoved. There's a bottle flying through the air. Imagine being confronted with that and how you'd have to, like, G yourself up on the bus. That, that sense of purpose, that sense of strength is quite remarkable. And the reason why, actually, that's the turning point that I think is one of the biggest is because it showcases the collective travelling around confronting people's fear in regional, primarily regional communities. This is where the that tension of communities versus communities has the power to change. That Freedom Bus trip changed the capacity for white people to vote for the referendum in 67. And that was a massive swing. This is Bowerville, 360 miles north of Sydney, population about 1,000 people. They definitely should have their rights. Do you think the Aboriginals behave well out here? I do think the Aboriginals behave well, and I think they have the right to have an education the same as any other Australian. After all, they are Australians, and we are supposed to have education and all the facilities in Australia, and I think they should have it. The Freedom Ride made Australians realise that we've got a terrible situation in this country, let's do something about it. And they thought, by expressing their vote at the referendum in 1967, that was their contribution to it. So I think in political terms it was uh, very significant. The success of the 1967 referendum campaign was testament to the power of change through collective action. The referendum is on Saturday and it's important that we should have the maximum vote because the eyes of the world are on Australia. They are waiting to see whether or not the white Australian will take with him as one people the dark Australian. I feel that the Aboriginal people should be housed in decent houses, not halfway houses. A halfway house uh, produces a halfway citizen. And of course you can't neglect the point that we got through the referendum on a nine to one majority and referendums in this country have history of being defeated. So 90% of white Australia were saying, get off your ass and do something for Aboriginal people. In the end, this tiny little handful of people, practically penniless, achieved in getting 90.2% of the voting population of Australia to vote in favour of the change we required. So we went mad with excitement, I cannot tell you. Churchill Fellow Hannah McGlade is a Western Australian Noongar woman. She says Australia's Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody and the Stolen Generations, Bringing Them Home report, were really important turning points for her in the fight for rights. In the early 1980s, I was a, a young high school student and we witnessed the death of a young Aboriginal man in a country town called Robin. His name was John Pat, and he was only 16 years old. And John Pat had been killed in an incident involving off-duty police officers, several involved, who were charged with um, criminal offences. They were acquitted by an all-white jury. John Pat died in 1983. He was 16. His death became a symbol of Aboriginal anger at a white justice system. Why is it that someone can kill an Aboriginal and just because they've got a blue uniform on, they can walk away scot-free? The five men, four of whom are married, left the court immediately as free men. They're now all still working in the police force. 
This triggered a national groundswell across the country and a movement for a Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. We're not asking for a formal inquiry. We're not even asking for anything. We are demanding justice for the black people of Australia and a Royal Commission. What is it? Uh, the increasing calls from the Aboriginal community uh, and uh, from many others for a Royal Commission indicate to us, and we accept, uh, that uh, any inquiry which did not have the status of a Royal Commission would be unacceptable. It's now 30 years since the Royal Commission into deaths in custody and we're still seeing Aboriginal people die at horrific rates in this country and we know that most of those recommendations, important recommendations, still haven't been implemented or given due respect by the governments. There was also, in the 1990s, we had a national inquiry by the Human Rights Commission looking at the removal of Aboriginal children under the past policies. That was really historic. It was an absolute turning point. Before that national inquiry, there hadn't been recognition of what had been done to Aboriginal people under the colonial laws of government uh, in relation to the removal of Aboriginal kids. The mass protests against the celebration of the 1988 bicentennial of the white settlement of Australia were another big turning point. That was in 1988 and Aboriginal people were being told by governments that we should just celebrate the colonisation of Australia and the dispossession of Aboriginal people without a treaty or any form of real settlement. Uh, so Aboriginal people across the country, including from West Australia and Perth, we joined convoys and travelled uh, across the nation to arrive at La Perouse in Sydney and to take part in protests. And I understand that they were the biggest protests Australia had seen since the Vietnam War. Happy birthday, Sydney. 200 years and the first fleet has arrived to great applause around Southhead and a massive spectator fleet, as you can see. We protested the tall ships that were arriving in Botany Bay, re-enacting the colonial acquisition of Australia and attack on Aboriginal people's lands. That was really powerful. Hannah McGlade says while there has been big steps forward in our fight for rights, she also sees things not changing like our legal system, which she says is still turning a blind eye to violence and abuse against people and country. We know that the land is being damaged and we saw what happened to Jook and Gorge and that incredibly significant sacred site in the Pilbara that was uh, basically blown up by the Rio Tinto company in disregard of its international heritage significance. So our land is, is suffering uh, but if we talk about the people and what's being done, we know that Aboriginal people are experiencing very severe human rights abuse and are suffering as a result. We know what intergenerational trauma is. We know what happened to people removed under the past policies, which were found to be genocidal by the National Human Rights Inquiry in the bringing them home 
review of Australia's um, past policies, we know that they're suffering there. But even today, we're looking at systemic and structural discrimination and the impacts that that is happening on Aboriginal people today. I'm really um, obviously um, concerned in my work about mass incarceration of Aboriginal people and child removal, which is at such high levels, it exceeds uh, the level of child removal under the history of the stolen generations by far, and the experiences of a great many children is, is quite painful and certainly not care. Anna is particularly worried about violence against Aboriginal women, which she says is continuation of the horrific treatment of First Nations women during colonial and mission times. So the response is not, you know, to support Aboriginal women on the part of the Australian state, but to actually criminalise and punish women. And it's been known for a long time now that Aboriginal women are the fastest growing prison population in Australia and are the most overrepresented group in the criminal justice system. They generally all have histories of, of violence, abuse and, and, and victimisation from childhood onwards. And we do nothing about that. We do nothing but punish women and show a lack of care, uh, re-traumatise and create disability in the inhumane treatment of them in, in prisons. The people of the Torres Strait have shared many turning points with Aboriginal people, but they also have their own unique history. Eddie Corky Mabo, the celebrated Torres Strait Islander land rights campaigner, told this story of how his mur, or Murray Island, was taken over by British colonisers in the 1880s. Our ancestors seen Matthew Flinders went through and, and so on, and all the others that came past there. And they've seen the anthropological reporters came to the islands and, and, and left. And they've seen Chester, the man who annexed the island for Britain, been to Murray and left while we... Because I, I heard some stories from my grandfather uh, telling about big ships going in there with cannons and firing... Uh, cannons over the heads of the islanders. That's when they conquered the islands and uh, made it part of part of Britain. And of course, the islanders uh, knew that they were in minority, and they uh, put down their arms and surrendered to Britain. And that's when we became part of Queensland. Unfortunately, Churchill Fellow Donisha Duff is from Thursday Island. She has family links to Moa and Badu Islands and is a Yadugana Wudati, traditional owner of Cape York. She says the inclusion of the Torres Strait Islands under Queensland's Aboriginal Protection Act in 1904 was a devastating development which forced many of the state's First Nations peoples into reserves. The Aboriginal Protection Act here in Queensland, which actually moved people onto missions, stopped people practising culture and language. So if you're talking about attempts to completely break down a culture and society, that's completely destructive. And that has, you know, lasting legacies on communities now in Queensland. You still have quite a few who were, you know, previous missions and reserves that are, you know, large communities that are still living there. 
and to some extent um, they are self-governed um, by local governments now, but that's still a history and impact that they have to overcome. In a landmark action in 1936, Torres Strait Islander workers on pearling luggers staged a nine-month general strike challenging the control authorities had over their lives. Islanders built the company boats, but the local Queensland government protectors controlled them, which led to growing resentment among locals, especially against the local protector, J.D. McLean. In the name of improving industry, J.D. McLean imposed an evening curfew, signalled by what was known as the boo whistle. He also directed recruitment of crew members and skippers for company boats and handled the financial books and personal earnings of islanders. At the beginning of January 1936, J.D. McLean visited the inhabited islands to sign men onto company boats. Just as McLean landed on Murray and Bardu Islands, it was announced that all maritime workers of company boats, except for two, were on strike. When McLean tried to recruit men in a hall at Bardu Island, councillors and workers refused to join. One man read a statement listing reasons for his refusal. He then convinced others to jump out of the hall windows with him as a sign of protest. Once outside, people whistled and called out, we'll never sign back. Like most Torres Strait Islander men in the 1930s, Denisha Duff's grandfather was working on the pearling luggers at that time. You had effectively Torres Strait Islanders who were working on, you know, the, the maritime industry pearling luggers who were going on strike because at that time the protector of Aborigines, you know, was taking control of affairs and the way luggers operated um, and the payment or non-payment um, uh, of, of wages. So effectively you had a whole heap of Torres Strait Islanders who were on strike and calling for, you know, better treatment um, and for, you know, full payment of their wages and recognition of the work that they were doing. So that was really a turning point in terms of recognising that um, wages needed to be paid for those that were doing the work, um, fair wages, and it really was a collective action by Torres Strait Islanders to say no more, you know. It's time for us to be actually treated and respected as, as, working, as working people, you know, contributing to an economy. And, you know, it goes back to my family history as well too. My grandfather was actually a pearl diver during that period as well. So he would have been working on the luggers. So, you know, you, it's, it's a proud moment when you think, you know, that's a positive change for us as a family um, to be, you know, have, 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 have been positively affected by it. I think it should have happened a lot earlier in terms of recognition of people's rights. I mean, we had Federation at 1901, and this is 35 years later, we're actually recognising the, you know, the physical labour and input of Torres Strait Islanders into the economy. The main thing that we get it across is that our fight for recognition of our land is still on. Whether we win it or we're going to go on to the next phase of the, the battle, that's how we explain it to our people because we can't explain it in your, in your way of explaining things. It's totally different. 
to our way of explaining, to be able to fit into our thinking. That's how we do it. Eddie Mabo's long campaign for recognition of land rights on Murr Island in the Torres Strait eventually changed Australian law, overthrowing the myth of terra nullius. For the first time, Australia has recognised the legal existence of Aborigines prior to white settlement. The case is a moral victory, as well as having great significance for land rights. Where has this native title been for the last 200 years? Terra nullius was the doctrine up until today. A native title now becomes a new law, but native title can only exist with the consent of the Crown. Native title is meaningless because, as far as we are concerned, we have never surrendered any of our lands, we have never surrendered our rights to our territories and our resources, and a thief is still a thief, whether it's called under native title or terra nullius. In 1992, the High Court ruled in favour of the land claim by Eddie and four other Torres Strait Islander men. In backing their claim, the High Court effectively recognised the rights of all Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people to their land. On his deathbed, that's all he kept saying was land claim, land claim. And, you know, that was in his last breath, he kept talking about it. So it was essentially very, very important to my father. Uh, I think he set the foundation, um, really, really strong foundation for all of us in terms of, um, you know, when, when I set foot on my land on Badu, I do feel, when you, when you talk about, you know, the Mabo decision, the land rights, and, and, and I'm standing on my own land, you know, I feel inside that nobody's going to take this away from me, yeah. That's, you know, still a landmark for Torres Strait Islanders in terms of recognising something we always knew. We always knew we had land rights. We always knew, you know, we had uh, intergenerational recognition of land rights. That's how we lived. And, you know, it was just uh, the High Court recognising it served as legally Western systems of legal recognition finally accepted that this was the way um, culture and practice and land, um, handing down of land happened in families. I think there's certain pride um, that Torres Strait Islanders have. You know, that's their landmark decision which recognises family claims to land rights. I was fortunate to actually have travelled to um, Mayor, uh, Murray Island, um, for, the, for a really important celebration um, of Mabo. And you could see the pride in people. There was a huge parade down the middle of the street. There was festival, you know, for the whole week. Um, really in acknowledgement of, you know, that decision and the celebration of that decision. Denisha says the establishment of the Torres Strait Regional Authority in 1994, after hundreds of years of colonial and state rule, also paved the way for greater self-determination in the Torres Strait. My third turning point is the, um, in 1994, the establishment of the TSRA, the Torres Strait Regional Authority, and that continues now where we have seen, you know, ATSIC dismantled, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission dismantled. I think, um, you know, that structure and the, the elected representation of Torres Strait Islanders on that board gives really good authority and governance to Torres Strait Islander people to determine what their priorities are on their own country. While particular turning points have been critical in the fight for rights, it's our culture and connection to country that's given us the strength and resilience to keep fighting. 
Kara Kirkwood puts it this way. I think that Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people's capacity um, to get out of bed and keep fighting for policy relevance, for identity, for culture every day, that is significant every day. I can think of, you know, all the families, the young ones, the the middle-aged ones like me, um, and the older ones who, you know, everyone's had a different fight, but it's actually, and there's been huge disruptions, huge inequities in our survival and our resistance in this country. But still, people get up and they get out of bed. So turning points for me is the fact that every Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person that I know that can get out of bed every day and go and fight for what we're always trying to do, the work, that, to me, is a turning point every day. As well as resilience, it's our close relationships to each other that makes us so strong as a people. The greatest, I think, impact of British kind of culture, Western culture, in our context, is individualism. Because it's, it's meant that people see themselves as uniquely separate to everything around them. And when we see ourselves as completely inseparable which is the idea of the collective, then we all elevate, amplify and move forward together and we all kind of make sure we're okay. If you're working from an individualist construct, you just want to make sure you're okay. In our way, we want to make sure everyone and everything is okay because then it means we're okay. I think about it as as the notion of collectivity, that this collective of which we're one part of as humankind is only going to benefit if we're all benefiting. That brings us to the end of this first episode of Voices of Power. Visit the IATSIS website at iatsis.gov.au and to find out more about Churchill Fellowships or read the Fellows Reports, visit churchilltrust.com.au. The fellowships offer people from all walks of life support to travel overseas to explore issues they're passionate about and that can make a difference. If you would like to apply for a fellowship or know anyone who does, now is your chance. Applications open in February and close at the end of April. Our second and third episodes of Voices of Power are online now and ready for you to download, so get listening. In the next episode, we look at how First Nations people here and overseas are rebuilding their tribal nations to create strong futures. I'm Vic Sims. Catch up with you then, eh? The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of IATSIS or the Churchill Trust.